Over the years, I have sensed some skepticism about the value of a, of a book devoted to the topic of character or holiness. It's not that any faithful pastor would ever, ever argue against anything I've written, maybe a, a, a minor detail here and there, but it's not that anybody uh, would really uh, object to a book on holiness, but, but some might question the necessity of writing or reading uh, books on this topic. And I think, well, why is that? Why is it that in some camps, some Christian camps, why is there an emphasis on theology that somehow finds a way to, to minimize or assume uh, sanctification? that may not be the camp you're coming from. In fact, you may be coming from a camp that sort of emphasizes holiness and doesn't pay much enough attention to the knowledge of God. It just depends on, on, on your history and, and your experience. But in my experience, there are a number of, of godly, godly, godly men, godly pastors, who attend so carefully and rightfully to the nuances of theology, but they're not as careful about self-examination and looking for evidence of spiritual fruit in, in their lives. Why is that the case? Uh, perhaps in part, it's because we are understandably aware of the limits of character. I mean, there are things that, that character can't do. So I, th I, tr I do try to think about this historically. And uh, a lot of people are familiar with uh, a, a pastor from Alexandria in the 4th century by the name of Arius. I think Arius was one of the most destructive teachers in the history of the church. Arius' arguments against the divinity of Christ uh, sowed doubt and skepticism to the doctrine of the Trinity that crushed churches throughout North Africa and really throughout much of the, the known Christian world at that time. And yet Arius was known as one of the godliest pastors in Alexandria and beyond. Clearly, character has its limitations. Another example is the church father Tertullian. Now Tertullian was not like Arius. He was known for his theological orthodoxy. And in fact, we get the term Trinitas from Tertullian. He coined the term, if you will, Trinity. Because as you know, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But even Tertullian, later in his life, was led astray by uh, a man, well, the, really the followers of a man named Montanus, who argued that he was the mouthpiece of the Holy Spirit. And one of the reasons Tertullian was so attracted to the Montanists was because Tertullian looked around at the church in which he lived. He saw decadence. And among the Montanists, 
He saw holiness. But their holiness was not associated with what we would now consider to be biblical orthodoxy. And you fast forward to the Reformation, and um, I want to be careful to say something that I'd be happy to say if Martin Luther were actually standing here. Would I, would I want to say this? I, I think I would not want to say anything if Martin Luther were standing here. But I, as, we, as we read Luther's writings, um, gentle doesn't like rip off the page. You know, it doesn't burst forth like, oh, you're so gentle. <laughs> Uh, in personal conversation, he very well may have been. I don't want to malign a dear brother of the past. But I do think as we perceive Luther, what, what we appreciate about Luther was he spoke truth to power. And wherever the, wherever the chips landed, they landed. And we respect that. There's something about that that's attractive. Like there's a, there's a ferocity to Luther, a courage to Luther. He upheld the gospel of Jesus Christ and he upheld it in the boldest of terms. And we ought to be like that. We ought to be purveyors of truth, protectors of truth, espousers of truth, preachers of truth. And sometimes people are going to get hurt, but that's okay because we are Luther-esque in our embrace of theology. All right, I'm, I'm perhaps overstating it a bit. But I, I'm trying to answer the question, why is it that people in some tribes appear to be gravitate towards theology at the neglect of a dutiful concern for the doctrine of sanctification. But we know that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. We, we know that. But when we see keep a close watch on ourselves, perhaps we think, well, there's no scandalous sin in my life. You know, I mean, I'm, there, there's nothing glaring. And so let me just move on to keep a close watch on the teaching. It's with that in mind, not as an apology for you to buy my book, but as an apology for you to devote yourself to your own sanctification, for your good and the good of your church, that I want to share five reasons you ought to give attention to your character, and then five ways, and I'll do the last five very quickly, five ways that, that you can pursue a, a fruit-filled life. Five reasons pastors in particular ought to give attention to character. Number one, because no one shapes the congregation. No one shapes, forms, molds, influences the congregation more than the elders. In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus drops a principle that is true. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's the principle. Your congregation, if you're the teacher of the congregation, the members of your church are your disciples. I mean, ultimately, they're Christ's disciples, but they're following they're going to follow in your footsteps. They're going to be like their teacher. Which explains why Paul charged the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to their lives, Acts 20:28, 20, Because he knew the church in Ephesus would follow them. It's why Paul said a minister's conduct, a minister's conduct in 1 Thessalonians 2.10 should be holy 
and righteous and blameless. Why? Because the congregation's going to follow suit. It's not that the pastor is all-powerful. Of course not. It's not that the pastor is trying to create little, little Aaron's, right, or little John's. I mean, it's not that. It's just, this, is, this is God's economy. It's how he works things out. You know, we point people to Christ, but they can't help but look at us in the process. And more times than not, they're going to become like us. Shared leadership helps. A plurality of elders helps. In churches with enough gifted men, they, they have a, a way of sort of muting the significance of any one elder. That's helpful, but it's never going to drown out the influence of that individual who may spend most of the time teaching the congregation, discipling the congregation. Many years ago, I was at a church with a brother really struggling with discouragement, really tantamount to depression. And his preaching showed it. Uh, it the applications he chose to, to bring to the table, the illustrations he used. It was a relatively small church, and over time, a sort of malaise set over the church. And I remember sitting back and thinking, and this is before Luke 640 was really on my mind, but I remember thinking, his preaching is really influencing us in a negative way. We're becoming a bit discouraged. Maybe we're becoming a little bit depressed. And as I reflect on that years later, I think, aha, this is what Jesus said. The disciple will become like his teacher. No one shapes the congregation more than the main preaching pastor. And so if you're not attending to your character, you may not be aware, but your congregation, most of the congregation, I'm speaking generally here, is going to follow suit. I'll give you a, an, another reason. Number two, the reputation of the church depends upon the righteousness of the pastor. I know that's a strong way to put it, depends upon, but the New Testament clearly affirms that how we act affects how we are viewed. Colossians 4, 5 through 6, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the, of, of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Walk in wisdom toward outsize, outsiders. Like walk by the Spirit toward outsiders. Let outsiders see your, your, your life, your, your, gracious, your gracious speech. Right? They're going to make they're going to they're make decisions about the church, about the gospel, based upon what they see in you. You're not the most important thing, right? God's word, his truth is the most important thing. It's his truth that saves, but you're not insignificant. Right? The reputation of, of, of the church, in that sense, depends upon, upon your character. Matthew 5.16 In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. Right? That would be your kindness, right? Your, your acts of kindness would fall under that umbrella term of good works, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? Your good works won't save anybody. That doesn't mean they're unimportant. Right? People are going to draw conclusions about the Lord as they look at, at your life. Not, not just what you teach, as important as teaching is. But they're looking at your life as well. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of a visitation, even when they look at you and they, they hate your theology, they hate what you believe about God, they hate what you believe about God's ways in the world, but they see you and they're struck. And your life has a way of commending the gospel that you preach. And some of them, by God's grace, putting the two together, might one day repent and believe and give glory to God at Jesus' second coming. Now these verses that I just shared with you, Colossians 4, Matthew 5, 1 Peter 2, they're addressed to every Christian. However, it's hard to dispute that the pastor is the leading Christian. And in most cases, the, the representative of his church in the community. We don't want to dismiss this idea. Uh, I remember a number of years ago reading Mark Dever's book, um, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And there was a line that, that really struck me. Uh, Pastor Dever said, he asked the question, why is it that when a non-Christian hears the word holiness, the first thing that comes to his mind before Christian pastor is Buddhist monk. I think there are some sociological reasons why that's the case. You know, Buddhist monks live an ascetic lifestyle. You know, so it's understandable perhaps why, you know, someone might identify, you know, separation from the world with a Buddhist monk. Whereas as, as Christian pastors, we live in the world but not of the world. But there's a grain of truth in what he was saying, isn't there? That for various reasons, when a lot of our our neighbors hear the word Christian pastor. The first thing that comes to their mind might not be a man who has a visible, intimate walk with the Lord. We can't change the reputation of the global church, but by God's grace, shouldn't we make a dent in the reputation of the church in our community? It's a good reason to care about character. Uh, number three, this, and maybe this is one of the reasons why you came tonight, so buckle up. The salvation of the congregation is tied to the holiness of the pastor. The salvation of the congregation is tied to the holiness of the pastor. All right, 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, right? so doing what? By keeping a close watch on yourself, your life, and your doctrine, by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I get, I'll be saved, right? I can't be a Christian if I don't walk in holiness, right? Holiness doesn't produce my Christianity, but it's the evidence of my Christianity. I have no reason to think I'm a Christian, you know, if I'm not walking in holiness. Like, having the title pastor is no evidence of, 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 of salvation. Walking in holiness is, so I sort of understand, you know, persist in right living, right teaching, so you'll save yourself, in a sense, but save my hearers? John Calvin commented on this verse. Listen to what he, he said. A pastor will become even more zealous when he is told that both his salvation and that of the people who listen to him 
depend on his devotion to his office. Let me stop there for a moment. Are you zealous? It's late at night. Maybe not right now. In your pastoral ministry, are you zealous? For those of you who aren't yet pastors, are you zealous to be a pastor? Are you zealous to preach the Word? Are you zealous to live out the Word of God? He says, you'll be zealous, more zealous, when you are told that your salvation and that of the people who listen to you depend on your devotion to your office. Now, Calvin knew how we would object, and so he wrote, God alone saves, and no part of His glory can be transferred to men. But God's glory is not at all diminished when He employs men's efforts to bestow salvation. God alone is the author of salvation, but this does not exclude the ministry of men, for the well-being of the church depends on that ministry. The well-being of the church, the salvation of the church depends upon the ministry of the pastor. And by ministry of the pastor, by office of the pastor, Calvin, reflecting on 1 Timothy 4.16, is arguing that your office includes your commitment to right doctrine and your commitment to right living. And if you are not sold out to both, you have no reason to expect your church to prosper spiritually. That's the rule. Are there exceptions? Uh, Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, so long as the gospel is preached, from whatever motives, I care most about the gospel being preached. That's the exception. The rule is your motives matter. Right? Your, your, your heart for the Lord matters. The devotion to our office includes a careful attention to our own holiness. God ordains the ends, genuine church growth. I'm not talking numerical growth, but depth. It's not that I don't care about numerical growth. I just can't promise that. But, but spiritual growth, growing in the knowledge of the Lord, right? that's, a, that's a promise. If you've got a group of Christians... That's the promise. They're going to grow. God's ordained that growth. The end. But He's also ordained the means. What's the means? Well, the pastor devoted to right teaching and devoted to right living. Now this is why when we historically think about the marks of the church, we think about, and there's a little bit of a controversy here. What are the marks of the church? I'm not talking about the nine marks of a healthy church. I'm talking about further back in history, during the time of the Reformation as Protestants were distinguishing themselves from the Roman Catholic false church. And they said, the marks of the church are the right preaching of the word and the right administration of the ordinances. Right? So to have a true church, how do you know this is a true church? Well, the gospel is being rightly preached. The word of God is being handled well. Like truth is being proclaimed and, and, the ordinances are being properly administered, right? No one is thinking that, they, that the, the, the spigot of God's grace is being opened when the, the cup is being taken, right? It's, it's the, 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 the proper administration of the ordinances, the sacraments, the right preaching of the word. But what happened eventually is some of the reformers thought, okay, but wait a second. It's possible to have the Word of God rightly preached, the ordinances rightly administered, 
but, but people living in rebellion against that truth. Like it's not enough to, to believe the right things. Right? You've, got to, you've got to live it out. So they added a third mark. Right or faithful discipline. Whereby a true church is distinguished by the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the ordinances, and a kind of accountability whereby the congregation says, this is what the word produces. A Christian walking by the Spirit. A Christian walking in, in, in holiness. Right? The salvation of the congregation is tied to the holiness of the pastor. Number four. Pastors are unusually tempted by self-righteousness. Pastors are unusually tempted by self-righteousness. I'm going to really uh, assert this more than really back it up. Uh, it's interesting to me that Jesus' enemies in the Gospels seem to primarily be the people who knew the Bible the best, the scribes and the Pharisees. There seems to be something about handling the Word of God that can tempt a man to think he's better than the man next to him. Look at all I've given up. I'm a pastor. If I wasn't a pastor, I could be making all this money as an engineer, as a doctor. But no, no, I'm close to the Lord. You know, I'm a pastor. There's something about pastoral ministry that can lead all of us toward self-righteousness. Being close to the things of God is such a blessing. But sometimes the um, sort of the glory of handling the Bible every day deeply, where you're, you're undistracted by the things of the world. You don't have to necessarily, some of you may be bivocational. You handle it regularly. And over time, the, the glory of that fades and you become distracted and maybe a little bit numb to the Lord or to the things of God. One Christian who looked carefully at the pastorate once said this, even the very sacredness of his profession, that's the pastor, is not without a snare. There's something ensnaring about being a pastor. There's a danger about being a pastor. He may repeat the holy offices so often. In other words, he may discharge his duties, sermon preparation, prayer, shepherding. He may repeat the holy offices so often that he may be in danger, on the one hand, of sinking into the notion that it is a mere profession or, like in other words, it's just my job. That you, you do it again and again and again. It's just your job. Or, on the other, of so resting in it as to make it supersede the necessity of that strict personal religion with which he set out. In other words, he may be so accustomed to praying for others that he stops praying for himself. He may be so accustomed to pointing out the sins of others that somewhere down the road he stopped pointing out his own sins. His zealous exposition of the Scriptures to others may satisfy him, though it does not always lead to a practical application to them, of them to himself. 
So like the Pharisee in Luke 19, we may be well aware of the sins we avoid and blind to the sins that we, we cherish. Having forsaken all for Christ, going into pastoral ministry, perhaps we overlook self-pity or lust, bitterness, and so forth. Pastors are unusually tempted by self-righteousness. And then, number five. The pastor's chief duty is hindered by a lack of holiness. Now, this is a provocative statement that you might not agree with. The pastor's chief duty. Right, what is the pastor's chief duty? Uh, I would probably say teaching is the chief duty of the pastor. I would say that on the grounds of the qualifications of an elder. What is the unique qualification of an elder besides that he be a recent convert? That he be able to teach. That leads me to want to say the chief duty of the pastor is preaching or teaching. Fair enough, but I find it interesting that in Acts chapter 6, when the apostles call the church to set aside individuals to take care of the widows, they, they, they do so that they might devote themselves to what? To prayer and the ministry of the Word. I'm not convinced that that means prayer is the chief ministry of the pastor, but I think a case could be made that there's something powerful about a pastor praying for the congregation. What makes prayer effective? Well, the blood of Christ. The fact that Jesus is interceding on our behalf. What makes prayer effective? The, the omnipotence of God. The fact that nothing is impossible with God. What makes prayer effective? Well, the fact that God loves His children and is faithful to His promises and we can bank on each and every one of them. But it's interesting how many passages in the New Testament ascribe the effectiveness of our prayers to the righteousness of our heart. So let me give you some examples here. James 5.16 Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I don't know exactly what this means. But James does seem to be connecting the efficacy of prayers to the righteousness of the prayer. In other words, the idea seems to be don't presume that God is going to warmly receive your request if you are cold, distant, living in sin. Don't expect God to warmly receive your prayer. He'll hear you. There's nothing he doesn't hear. But don't expect him to warmly receive your prayers if your life appears to be marked by unrighteousness. Another example, 1 Peter 4, 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. I take that to be pieces of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control, Galatians 5, 23. Sober-minded, not listed in Galatians 5, but again, that's not an exhaustive list of the pieces of the fruit of the Spirit. Why? For the sake of your prayers. 
for the sake of your prayers. Now this next scripture is from the same book, previous chapter, applied to a husband, but same principle. 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And then he goes on to say, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The righteousness of your relationship with your wife has an effect on the efficacy of your prayers. So I put that all together. Right? The, the apostles devoting themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Uh, the obvious need for holiness in the life of the pastor. And then these texts that imply uh, the power of our prayer is related in some way to the righteousness of the prayer. And I conclude the pastor's chief duty is going to be hindered by his lack of holiness. I don't mean to appeal to your carnal desire to be successful. Be holy so your church will grow. I just want to be faithful to the Bible and say, let's wrestle with this. God's not indifferent to our character when we're on our knees. All right. Let me, let me very quickly then just mention five things that uh, I, I think, if you will, we can do. Um, I'm going to do this very quickly, all right? Number one, give as much attention to your character as you do your calling. In fact, see your calling. See your character as part of your calling. Give as much attention to your character. Do you carve out time for self-examination? is part of your pastoral ministry. All right, number two, don't assume you know where you struggle the most. And I think if there were one thing I could say that is sort of hit me the most in this process of meditating on the fruit of the Spirit is the fact that I had spent so many years of my life thinking, presuming I was aware of my biggest struggles. And I would have identified them as pride, laziness and lust i'm not saying those were my biggest struggles but if you ask me like what can i pray for you about those would come to mind pray for this not in a thousand years would i've said hey pray that i'd be more gentle it just frankly i knew people who i didn't think were very gentle i thought compared to them you know i'm like really gentle <laughs> and then what do you know an individual in my life is comparing me to jesus whoa you know rightfully so and I fell so far short. And it just made me aware of something so obvious. Don't assume you know your biggest struggle. And that's where meditating on, the, on all these, these lists of the fruit of the Spirit is just so helpful. Like, Lord, uh, you know, are you, do you ever give generously to anything? <laughs> you know, pastors are so accustomed to receiving. I know you give of your time, but even materially, we're so used to receiving. You know, are you generous? Are you growing in generosity? Do you think you get, I get an off on that. I get a buy because I'm a pastor. That's a problem. And the only way I think we're going to know is if we look into the mirror of God's word. And I think all these lists of the fruit of the spirit are really helpful because maybe there's just something we're not aware of, but God is, and he's given us his word. And as we study it, we're going we're gonna to know. So don't assume you know where you struggle the most. Number three, invite men to come alongside you and speak truth to you. You know, often pastors are an, are an, an intimidating folk. They're just, you're, you're intimidating just by virtue of your office. You're a pastor. That can be intimidating to people. They know you're in the Bible all the time. They know you're praying. 
they might have a hard time saying, hey, pastor, you should grow in this area. Do you make it easy for them or hard? Do you make it easier or hard for people you respect and love to speak truth to you? Now, they're not God. They're, what they say is not inerrant. But have you created a culture among your staff, in your churches, where it's okay to speak truth to you? So I think what you're doing, you know, the perennial question is, should these men be from within the church or outside the church? And my answer is yes. Vital to pursue fellowship with pastors and other churches. So vital. So where you can to pursue fellowship with pastors and elders and other churches, but vital to pursue fellowship with brothers, sisters in your own church. All right, number four Take the question, how are you doing seriously and answer honestly. I would say when a mature believer, when a mature believer in your church says to you, how are you doing? That's an opportunity for you to be honest. You need to be careful, right? You, as, you can't in your position simply share everything that's burdening you with anybody who comes up to you and says, how are you doing? That would be inappropriate. But I think you know when the right person comes along, maybe it's another elder, maybe it's a wise older brother, and they come to you and say, how are you doing? And when you just say, I'm fine, you could be missing an opportunity whereby, you know, the Spirit's prompted another person in your church to, to genuinely ask, how are you doing? That's an opportunity for you to say, you know, overall, I'm doing great, but, you know, I'm struggling to be patient and fill in with this, fill in the blank. Again, it's not appropriate to speak candidly about your personal spiritual growth with everyone in your church. But it is appropriate to wisely answer honestly when the occasion confronts you. And then number five, since fruit comes from the Lord, since fruit comes from the Lord, Stick tightly to the gospel. Since fruit comes from the Lord, stick tightly to the gospel. So I'll end here by reading from Joshua chapter 23, beginning in verse 10. Um, this is a, a, a record of God's amazing kindness to the people of Israel. He's led them through Moses. He's now led them through Joshua. Joshua is recounting that the goodness, the kindness of God in their midst. He says, Joshua 23.10, One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. That's God. God chose them. He fought for them. He poured out his grace on them. And then verse 11, Joshua says to them, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. That strikes me. That God's been so good to you. Be very careful to love him. And then he goes on to say, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, in other words, if you, if you turn away and start living like the nations around you, you're going to stumble and fall and ultimately be destroyed. But he doesn't tell them to obey, although 
Certainly there are passages in, throughout the Old Testament to obey. I'm just noticing right here, what does he tell them to do? He tells them to love. And so my challenge to you is not so much to be holy, but to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. To love the one who loved you first. To come to the gospel every day with a childlike wonder that the creator of the universe in God the Son took on flesh and died not just the death that people in your congregation deserved, but the death that you deserved. He did that for you. Don't grow old to the gospel because ministry is hard and you get bad emails. Right? Don't grow cold to the Lord because your church isn't growing as fast as you want it to grow. Right? Don't be bitter to the Lord because your church is growing so fast and you, you can't find the people to staff it. Love the Lord. Because the moment you stop loving the Lord by virtue of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the moment you stop loving the Lord, you will, you will inevitably stop obeying the Lord. And holiness will be out of your reach. Pursue Christ. Dear gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for these men and these women for the opportunity that we have to think about pastoral ministry, to grow in not just our knowledge of you, but in our desire to follow you, to bear spiritual fruit to the praise of your glorious grace. Help us do that. In Jesus' name, amen.